0: Before I get into the message, I, I I feel almost compelled to mention what's going on in in Israel again. <clears throat> and I praise God that a number of the hostages have been released. I am rejoicing. Of course, I have heard the naysayers. It is relatively easy to sit in the comfort of your living room and question the decisions that Israel makes. That's simple. It's quite another thing when the lives of your friends, husbands, wives, grandmothers, children, hang in the balance. I'd like to try to give you some insight so that these... uh, Sayers of nay will not disturb you to give you some confidence in what Israel is doing right now. I have some understanding of this having been over there many times during many different conflicts. Soon after Israel was established in 1948, elements of the PLO and some other groups started taking hostages. This is not a new occurrence in Israel. And Israel's slogan was, at first, we will not negotiate with terrorists. The reasoning was simple. If you, if somebody takes hostages, and then you negotiate with them and you get back, you get something for taking hostages, you're actually promoting terrorism you're promoting these people, you're rewarding them taking. It makes sense. And although that's true, that bravado was short-lived. And it was not because of the pressure from the United States or any other nation that Israel started to negotiate with terrorists. Israelis put pressure on the government to negotiate to get their loved ones back. And was a was a real good example. There were riots in Israel. Get our, our, our family back. The government gave in to those pressures primarily because we place more value on saving the lives of our citizens than we do on exacting retribution upon those who took those hostages. And there's another underlying reason. The idea is let's get our people back. We can always track, hunt, and eliminate these terrorists at a later date. Munich is a perfect example of that. It may take years, but eventually, well, nobody is going to give life insurance policies to those people. They're not going to die of old age. When hostages were taken on October 7th, there was a lot of speculation by a lot of people, but mostly people who didn't know what was going on. As soon as, those, as, soon as October 7th happened, many instruments of the Israeli military were activated. It took a number of weeks for us to actually invade Gaza and it wasn't because of procrastination. Israel has scores of plans for invading Gaza, invading the West Bank, invading Lebanon that they can draw on. There's scores of them. Just like our country has hundreds of plans for the enemies of this country to invade that that nation we run scenarios. The CIA, military strategists, they run scenarios. Okay, if we need to go into this country, how are we going to do it? And they do that before anything actually happens. For instance, this plans to invade Venezuela. Will they happen? Probably not. But the plan is in place and there's a number of variations and then those scenarios can be modified. That's what military strategists do. That's why they are strategists. These regions of the Middle East are mapped from the air and they're under constant real-time surveillance from drones and satellites, so on and so forth. Further, elements of Shin Bet and Mossad immediately began to analyzed those surveillance photos to locate, they were trying to locate the hostages. Mr. Arvim, uh, uh, operators from that branch of the military within Gaza, those are the guys that were raised, gals and guys who were raised in Arab countries are familiar, real familiar with that culture and they are secret agents, if you will, and they live in these Arab nations, and they gather intel. And these operators within Gaza were also trying to locate the hostages on the ground. They were uh, inquiring from their assets, where are these hostages? The plan was to locate the hostages and then send in special sayot Units to rescue them before Israel invade. Israel was going to invade Gaza. That was that was set the moment that Hamas took hostages. We're going in, but we wanted to find out where the hostages were and send in these special forces units to try to rescue them. We have them here, Delta, Seal, Green Beret, men trained in hostage rescue. Unfortunately, we could not find them and we were left with no choice but to send in our forces before we knew where the hostages were. What is Israel going to do next? I don't pretend to know, but I I have a real good feeling. One of the reasons that Hamas or any of these other terror groups does not like to release the hostages, Israeli hostages, is because once released, there's nothing to keep Israeli special forces from hunting down the perpetrators as well as any prisoners that are released. There was a number of years ago something like over 200 hostages, uh, prisoners, were released from Israeli prisons. Once again, none of them could buy life insurance policies. No company would insure them. And indeed, they were all hunted down. The vast majority of them no longer are with us. Again, Munich is a perfect example. This horrific attack will not go unanswered understand that in Israel this is, this is the worst attack that Jewish people have suffered since the Holocaust. It really is. The barbarism, the the ruthlessness, the savagery of this attack is, is beyond the pale. Israel has a real long memory when its people are slaughtered. It's not the same thing in Israel as it is here. War in Israel is a family affair. Troops are not stationed at, at bases all around the country. When we went into Lebanon sounds like I got kind of back in the morning. When we went to Lebanon The people along the villages, uh, along the, the border, actually had the troops in their homes. They fed them. They tucked them in at night. When they were out fighting, they remembered that old grandma that fed them the night before some chicken soup, some chopped liver, yuck. You're fighting for your bubbies the Yazidis, your family. This operation will not end when Israel leaves Gaza. Israel will leave Gaza in not too long a time. They're there for one purpose and one purpose only, to find the leaders of Hamas who engineered this and kill them. To dismantle the infrastructure of Hamas so that we don't have to continue to do this all the time. We're tired of our people being slaughtered. But the overall operation will not end when Israel leaves Gaza. Right now, there's very few of the leaders left. Many have been already taken out, many have been captured, and others have scattered to other countries. And you can be assured that Israel has tracked them. They know where they are, for the most part. There will be a time of comeuppance. This attack will not be unanswered. Try not to judge too harshly the impetus for negotiation, was to save lives, to get our people back, to see that little kid running down the hallway of a hospital into the arms of his father. That was more important. Revenge, justice, these are things that can, that can wait. They're second, first, save those who are still alive. Just some thoughts for you to consider. The title of this message is Kol Hamakom, the call of the place. John chapter 1, verse 43 through 51, New Covenant portion. The title of this message actually comes from the Torah portion this week. Now, over the last few weeks, I have contrasted two types of love that flow from a faith in God. The first stems from what God has done on my behalf. He has provided me with food, with clothing, shelter. When my own actions have placed me in danger, he has plucked me from the fire. He kept me strong and relatively pain-free for six decades. His faithfulness in this life is obvious to me. And when I recount, you know, Mary and I had this wonderful Thanksgiving. We didn't go anywhere and we didn't do anything. We just sat in the house. I had a Shabbat, first one in a long time. It was a total rest. We did nothing. By the way, there's some turkey for you, Pablo. I have it. I couldn't find you on Thursday. And Paul, there's some turkey in that uh, fridge Mary cooked so you can enjoy. And we sat around and we gave, we thanked God for the things that he has given us, for the things he has done for us. And then we enjoyed this wonderful meal and had to fight going to sleep at 4.30 in the afternoon. It was amazing. Right? Mary comes out and goes, it's 4.30. I said, yeah. I can't go to bed at 4.30. I said, you can, but you'll be up at midnight. <laughs> when I recount the blessings of God, I am just filled with thanksgiving, and I can't help but express my love for him. Last week, I spoke about a love that is significantly deeper than that love. A love that extends beyond the pale of this world. A love for God not based on what he does for me, but merely on who he is. Psalm 8. Psalm 8. My Lord, how magnificent is your name in all the earth, and you who have set your glory above the heavens. David is remembering that scene from the first marriage supper of the Lamb when Moses and 70 of the elders of Israel ascended up the Mount Mount Sinai a portion of the way, and they gazed up into the heavens, and the scriptures say they saw God that there was this spheric floor this clear bluish cloudy kind of floor and they could see through it and there was the throne of God sitting and above that throne God hovered. That's where the psalmist is is getting this, this imagery from. Over the last 13 years They've gotten old and have experienced a number of ailments, afflictions, and just humiliations. I mean, I've got to ask for help these days. That's nothing I ever used to do. The strength of my youth, which laid an abundance on the surface, now has to be mined from great depths with even greater effort. It's just not there. And as I have pondered these conditions, I have come to this one inescapable conclusion. The excesses of my youth have caused the vast majority of my pain. God has not given me this pain. I earned this pain. (laughs) I sat down and figured out how to give myself this pain. But interestingly, when I remember those moments of injury or abuse of the body that God breathed life into, rather than regret, I kind of close my eyes and smile. Thousands of miles of wandering afoot through God's creation, many more more miles sitting atop my horse, my motorcycle. They bring images of grandeur from times long past. Even those times of fighting, conflict, bring the glory of God's presence. In those times of endurance, of pushing through, of keeping my eye on the job before me, the face of God was ever present. I have come to realize that the good and the bad times were all part simply of my training. The good times reveal God's faithfulness to me. The bad times reveal my faithfulness to God. Even when things are not going properly or the way I think they should. This kind of retrospect allows me to see the progression of my love for God. The love of a child when I was young, which was focused on me, what can you give me, has become the love of a spouse. What can I give to you? The former is a fragile love. The latter will endure forever. It's a love of, it's just commitment. I will love you. Perhaps an anecdote will reveal this more more clearly. Shortly after I asked God to reveal Yeshua to me, my prayer was pretty simple. Lord, a lot of people say this, Jesus is your Messiah if he is, show me, amen. It's not going to make it to the ecclesiastical top ten prayer list. But it was sincere, and God answered that prayer, and that was over 50 years ago. Shortly after that prayer, Sylvia and I set out on a journey of thousands of miles. We walked the length and the breadth of this country, and we finally found ourselves a place to settle in the shadows of the Teton Mountains. And she found... uh, a job at a ski resort while I was busy building ourselves a cabin before winter in because Teton Valley gets kind of cold and 50 below zero and a tent gets uncomfortable. Things went relatively well until I started on the roof. There were, it was a little six-sided house, and there were six logs to support this roof, and they were 25 feet long, and I had to set them and I was alone. I rigged up a series of pulleys and ropes and began the process of setting these beams in place. And the first two went up easy. Set up one, set up the other, and they leaned up against one another so they were stable this way. And then I set up a series of struts to and braces to keep them from moving side to side. I named the third log Bert because it wouldn't cooperate with me at all. I got it almost in place and made a few final chainsaw cuts to adjust the fit but when I went to move that log into place I realized I wasn't strong enough to move that log the last few inches. It's relatively easy to move it when it's down here but the closer you get the less mechanical advantage you have and now I simply couldn't move it That I was so close It was just a few inches. I couldn't get it over. Then I noticed my braces were also beginning to give way. And I'm standing on this 2 by 12, 20 feet in the air, and my focus changes from putting on the roof to staying alive. The log I was moving simply after, you know, just a couple of minutes became too much for me, and I had to let her go. And it came crashing down. It broke the plank I was on, and I I was able to grab the log, the two logs that were still stable. The log I let go fell and went through the subfloor I had just put on. And I'm hanging by one hand, and I was able to hook a leg over the log and climb up to the apex. And I looked into the heavens. And I'm about as mad as I've ever been. And I said, fine. And I'm talking to God. Fine. If you're not going to help me, then just leave me alone. Go away. Now, I'm not exactly sure how I figured my predicament was God's fault. But in my frustration and anger, I suppose I had to find somebody to blame. And it certainly wasn't my fault. It took two or three days for me to fix what had been destroyed, and I was once again preparing to get the rest of the logs up. There's still four more that needed setting. And I was still mad at God and didn't ask him for his help, like my lack of planning was his fault. And when I finished hooking up the pulleys and reinforcing my bracing, I heard the sound of a truck pulling up. And I watched these two guys get out, and they unloaded their tools, and I heard, can you use a hand? And I, <laughs> I said, yeah, actually more than one. They kind of laughed. They carried their tools up, and by the end of the day, all six logs were set. I mean, it was just anticlimactic. It was so easy. We came down, and we sat around a small campfire drinking a beer, and, and I asked, so uh, who are you guys, and how did you find me? Because I was way off the beaten path. They told me they were from a local congregation in town, and they heard someone talking about this guy who was north of town and needed some help, and so after church, we set out to find you. And they were just driving around looking for me, listening to hear. And they came out to help me get the cabin closed in before winter. And I I was in awe. I'd never experienced anything like that. Two guys I didn't know heard about someone who needed some help, and they... They spend the rest of their day off, because it was six days of working, and they spent their Sunday off looking for me. I was deeply humbled, and I thanked them profusely. And after they left, me and God had a heart to heart, and I had to repent. And I began to fall in love with God in a whole new way. Yes, I appreciated the help, but my love extended to a much deeper depth. I began to realize God really loved me. Even when I acted like a petulant child, frustrated, everything's about me, and no appreciation for anything, He still loved me. I told Sylvia the tale. She got off of work and Sylvia in Sylvia's uh, imitable way, she just smiled. I ended up attending that church. I ended up finding some really blessed friends, and they're the ones who ordained me. This experience was one of the many points of transition in my life, a moment in time and space in which one enters and he is forever changed. You don't necessarily stay in that place, but when you leave, you are not the same person that entered. You don't see things the same way. You don't think the same way. Nothing is the same. You've had an encounter with the Almighty. Psychologists call these moments liminal spaces. Places of transition from one consciousness to the next. Scripture doesn't know from the word liminal. Scripture refers to this space and time more simply. It's called hamakom, the place. In the place, one receives new information. A revealed knowledge that opens up your eyes to see differently. Scripture is replete with these moments in the lives of his people. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 17 through 20 is clearly a moment where the place was visible to at least one Israelite. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha." The servant thought Elisha was simply daft, mad, because Elisha was saying, those who are with us are greater than those who are with the enemy. And the servant is looking out, and the numbers of the enemy is overwhelming compared to the numbers of Israel. Elisha prays, Lord opened his eyes, and he sees the hills covered with the armies of God, chariots, the Merkava, the chariots of fire. That servant was forever changed, and I'm pretty sure he never gave Elisha any grief about anything he said after that, too. Of course, not all of these moments are good. The first liminal moment for man came in the garden when Adam and Chava ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and their eyes were, what, opened. And they were transformed from living in a condition of grace to now having the knowledge of good and evil and being required to do good and refrain from evil. The Bar Mitzvah in Judaism is a reminder of this moment when the child becomes a man and he's now responsible for his own behavior. Responsible to do good and refrain from evil. Greater responsibility. In the New Covenant portion the eyes of Nathaniel were opened at the beginning of Yeshua's ministry and he was able to see who Yeshua was and he proclaimed it. Even at as at the end of Yeshua's ministry on this earth, as the eyes of those on the road to Emmaus, the scales fell off and they were opened and they realized this is Yeshua. Those who accompanied Yeshua on the Mount of Transfiguration, experienced Hamakom, a moment when heaven and earth touched. A transition from the mundane to the eternal. A space, not here, not there, just transitional. And they beheld the Lord beginning to shine like the sun in its brightness. He was being transformed, transfigured into the image that he has in eternity. Revelation 1.16. Moshe entered the place as he stood before the bush that burned without being consumed. The nation of Israel experienced a similar time and space at the foot of Mount Sinai when God spoke the 10 words. And that place was plucked from this reality and was suspended between heaven and earth. The term Hamakon actually comes from this week's Torah portion, from Jacob's experience with God. a single experience that would change him forever jacob is travelling from beersheba to haran when he entered Bemakom into the place he was unaware he had left this world and entered into this transitional time and space that exists between heaven and earth He was simply exhausted from the day's journey, and he lays down to go to sleep. And as soon as he dozes off, he is taken up to see the things of heaven. At Bethel, which means the house of the Lord, Yaakov saw the heavens opened, and he sees a ladder come out of heaven, and it set down towards the earth, and the bottom of the ladder is sitting on the earth, and the top of the ladder is in heaven. And he sees this connection point between these two realms. And here the angels of God, or the messengers, are ascending and descending. What are they doing? They ascend first. They ascend with the prayers of God's people. They descend with the answers of God. This mystical moment reveals an ever-present connection between heaven and earth. It's not like this was staged. This was what was going on all the time, but Yaakov couldn't see. And God opened his eyes in this vision, and now all of a sudden he sees what's going on all the time. The malachim rising and falling on this ladder. Constant communication between heaven and earth. Yeshua would reveal who Yaakov saw 2,000 years later in John chapter one, verse 51. Nathanael was a Galilean and he was coming and he had heard about Yeshua and Yeshua sure tells him, oh, I, I know you, I saw you. You know, first of all, he was a Galilean without guile, without deceit. Galileans didn't have a good reputation in 2,000 years ago in Israel. Uh, kind of an example today would behold a Brooklynite in whom there is no deceit. Same kind of concept. Place is known for certain things. And Yeshua says to Nathanael, I saw you under the tree. And Nathanael says, oh my God, you're the Messiah. And Yeshua is kind of surprised. He says, you believe I'm the Messiah because I, I saw you sitting under the tree? Greater things than this. You're going to behold Truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Yaakov received a vision of Yeshua 2,000 years before he, he walked this earth in the flesh. Yeshua has always been the connection between heaven and earth. He came out of heaven. And his feet were set on the earth. And he is the point of connection between heaven and earth. That's why we pray in the name of Yeshua. Those prayers ascend on that ladder. And God answers those prayers. They descend upon that ladder. It's always been Yeshua. He has always been the point, the conduit of communication between heaven and earth. Abraham believed God when God opened his eyes to heaven and earth coming into contact, and God spoke with him. And Abraham believed God, and Abraham followed God. That's why he's the father of the faithful. Yitzchak also experienced this contact when he was bound to the altar, and God God spared his life. He would not allow him to be sacrificed. He also experienced it on another time when, after meditating in a field to seek understanding, you know, Avraham had sent his favorite servant to, to go get a wife for him. Yeah, that's a concept that would go over well today. Um, and, and Yitzhak is praying in the, in the middle of the field that he would recognize the woman that God was bringing to him. Yitzchak is now known as the father of those who seek the quiet place, seek to hear the words of God, to still their hearts, minds, and soul, that they might hear the words of the living God, and recognize what he wants. Rivka was also being prepared. The scriptures say that when Rivka saw Yitzchak, that she dismounted her camel, now that's not exactly what it says in the Hebrew in the Hebrew it says Rivka was knocked off her camel she was kinda smitten with the boy she was also prepared to recognize the one that God had for her Jacob is the father of something else so we call them the fathers. Jacob originally believed in God because his grandfather Avraham and his father Yitzchak believed in God. So he believed in God. At Beit El, Yaakov's faith became his own. He no longer believed because his father and grandfather believed. He now believed he appropriated God for himself, if you will. God appears to Yaakov and gives him the same promises that he gave to Avraham and Yitzchak. And that's when Yaakov realizes that this rather ordinary spot in the desert was actually a portal through which he could gaze into eternity because that's what happened to that vision. The eyes were open and he was able to see outside of time in this physical mundane universe, and he was able to gaze into the eternal heavens. In Genesis twenty-eight, verses sixteen through seventeen, Yaakov awoke from sleep and said, Surely the Lord Bimakom is in this place, and I didn't know it. How awesome is Hamakom, this place. This is none other than Bethel, the house of God, and Shar Hashemayim, the gate of heaven. That place in the desert was a gate to leave this universe and to gaze into the heavenly places. The faith of his fathers was now his faith. God was real to him, but it was still the faith of a child, if you will. Young Yaakov's prayer reveals the nature of his faith and the nature of his his love for God and that it was based on what God was going to do for him. Genesis 28, 20 through 22. Then Yaakov made a vow, and just as an aside, so that you might understand more about my belief in the divinity of our Lord. In the Targumim, which gives us an insight as to how our people see this, the vow Jacob makes here is to memra Hashem, to the word of the Lord. Then Yaakov made a vow, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. Programming language. If this scenario is in place, then this is what the computer is supposed to do. Jacob is saying, if these conditions are met, then the Lord will be my God. And the stone which I have set as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give, unto you I will give a tenth. God met those conditions. And Yaakov's faith was strengthened. But over the course of his life, Yaakov's faith and love matures. And it transitions from a love based on what God will do for him. To a love of who God is. And Yaakov does not lose his faith even when he believes his young, his young son, Yosef, is dead. He still walks with God. The fathers each experienced hamakom, moments of transition from being in this world but not of it. And when the reality of heaven changed them. They no longer saw the world in the same way. Abraham is the father of the faithful, Yitzchak the father of those who quiet their hearts to hear God, and Yaakov became the father of those who seek to behold the face of God. The psalmist understood this. Psalm 24 verse 6, this is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek Your face, even Jacob. Is a progression being revealed here? David also heard Hakol HaMakom, the voice, the call of the place. Psalm twenty-seven my personal favorite psalm, and as an aside, if you do not have a personal favorite psalm, get one. It's easy, read all of them. And the one that crawls off the page and into your heart, that's your favorite. It's not just a spiritual response to those words, These words are some of the most emotional words ever written. Open your heart to them. But in any way, this progression from having faith in God, to hearing God, to desiring more than anything else to behold the face of God, is the progression revealed in what we call the Aaronic Blessing, or Bechat HaKohanim, the priestly Blessing. It consists of, in Hebrew, three, five, and seven words. <speaking in Hebrew> May the Lord bless you and keep you. <speaking in Hebrew> Again, the face. <speaking in Hebrew> May the Lord shine his face upon you and, and give you grace, mercy. The first one is a physical blessing and protection. Shomer, to protect. The second is to reveal God's grace. When he lifts his face upon you, that's when you enter into peace. He gives you peace. To lift one's face upon another in the Middle East and Hebrew and many other Semitic languages is is the concept of you see that person for who they are. In our vernacular it it might be from eye to eye, face to face. Moses wanted to see the fullness of God's glory. Let me see your face. The last words of the Aaronic blessing beckons us to enter into Hamakom, the place, to find the peace of God's presence, the serenity that comes from being fully protected in the shadow of his wings. There's so many idioms that are used to describe this, and none of them are sufficient. Be ready in season and out for those times when God will open your eyes to see and you won't know beforehand when it's coming. Jacob had no idea. He was just tired. He laid down in that place. And that place became to him Shad HaShemayim, the gate of heaven. And he beheld the face of God in that place with greater clarity, and he began to know his God with greater intimacy. Look for those places. One day you will enter Hamakom, and you'll never leave it. And then what was said of Hanach, Inach, will be said of you. And he walked with God, And he was not. For God took him. The place is transitional. When Hanukah entered that place, he no longer desired to come back here. And God no longer desired to bring him back here. And so God took him. That doesn't represent a point of sadness. That represents a point of glory. You sure understood this too. John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. You sure understood what that was. It was glorification. You enter into the place. And you are changed there. and you can't exist here anymore. You are now glorious. You are light. And the realm you live in is now the place that our Lord has prepared for you from the beginnings of the foundations of the earth. How we see this world is determined but where our treasures are. When I was younger, I used to be concerned and worried and this and that, the state of the union, the state of the world, my own personal condition. As I've gotten older, I worry a lot less, and I don't think it's just a function of age. I think it's a function of wisdom. Because nothing here means as much to me as it used to. My eyes are fixed on a different place. And all the struggles that, you know, it's a lot like climbing a mountain. All the struggles you have to negotiate. Where is your vision? Where are you looking? You're looking at the peak, at the destination. Paul makes these analogies too. They're all accurate. Keep your eye on the prize and the things that happen on the way to it. Light affliction, a little bit of trouble here and there compared to the glory of that destination, the light of God's presence. Father in Yeshua's name, I thank you for the places that you have carved out into which we can enter. We seek to behold your face, Let us find those places as often as we can can stand, Lord God. And with each vision, may the clarity of your light become more real to us and eventually transform us. I thank you for your faithfulness. In all the darkness, there is always a place where the light of your presence shines. In Yeshua's precious name. Amen.